0: All right, today I'm joined by Dr. Tim Ball. Dr. Ball, thank you very much for joining me today.
1: Well, thanks for the opportunity, James.
0: All right. Um, Dr. Ball, could you just start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background with climate science?
1: Well, um, I uh, was born in England, immigrated to Canada, and um, was in the Canadian Air Force for nine years, where where I got my first uh, training and learning about the weather and climate and then um, lost my flying category and uh, got out of the military and went back to university and ended up getting a PhD in climatology uh, from the University of London, England, Queen Mary College and um, taught the subject uh, for 25 years and um, also researched um, and published in in the area and since retirement uh, have continued to publish um and um continue to work in the area of climate and then of course I guess the interesting thing for me is that my career spans two climate cycles when I started out global cooling was the scientific consensus now we're into global warming and um in my opinion uh, we're just starting on the on a cooling phase again so looks like I'm going to span three three uh, climate changes
0: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Corbett Report Podcast. I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you as always from the sunny climes of Western Japan here in October of 2022 with episode 427 of the Corbett Report Podcast, Remembering Tim Ball. Now, as you may or may not know, what you just heard there was the opening moments of my, well, my sixth ever interview, interview number six from the Corbett Report archives, released in July of 2007. But in actuality, my second actual interview of a person. The first few interviews being essentially recorded conversations between myself and some of my friends. And uh, a call into the Alex Jones radio show being one of those early interview posts. But really, I interviewed Connie Fogle of the Canadian Action Party, and then my second ever real interview that I conducted was my interview of Dr. Tim Ball. And I think that speaks to a number of things, um, one of which is the incredible generosity of spirit that defined my relationship with Dr. Ball. He was, from the very beginning, when I was an absolute and total nobody with some brand new podcast who had barely ever conducted interviews before in his life. I emailed him up asking for an interview about the global warming issue, and he was happy to give his time to do that, uh, despite my obvious lack of professionalism at that time. So I am very much indebted to people like Dr. Ball for opening those doors in those early days and for being so generous with their time, with their spirit, with their intelligence, Lending their experience and their research to the efforts of people like myself in order to get it out there. And I suppose it was a gamble of sorts when he took me up on that interview offer, but over the years we did talk many, many times and had many fruitful conversations, many of which are recorded now on the Corbett Report website for posterity. They are there as an archive, so of course I would direct you to corbettreport.com to check out. Tim Ball uh, in the search bar and see some of the many, many results that will pop up there. But unfortunately, I am speaking in the past tense when speaking of Dr. Ball because I hate to be the bearer of sad tidings, but in case you hadn't heard yet, yes, Dr. Ball did pass away late last month. And we can tell this from his own website, uh, which is still being maintained and updated by the family, the Ball family, uh, generalistjournal.com, which was updated with the sad news just a short time ago, Timothy Francis Ball Obituary. So reading from the obituary, after noting that he was born on November 5th, 1938, and died September 24th at the age of 83 with his family at his side, it notes that Tim came to Canada in 1957 at the age of 17. He worked in Toronto and Sudbury until 1960 when he joined the Royal Canadian Air Force as an aircrew radio operator. He was trained in Winnipeg, where he met Marty, who was a student nurse at St. Boniface Hospital. They were married on June 5, 1961. Tim became interested in the climate while being air crew for search and rescue in Winnipeg. Tim's ears were damaged by the long hours of flying without ear protection, and was, he was unable to fly anymore. He got out of the Air Force in September 1968 and went to university full-time. He got his BA honors at the University of Winnipeg, United College, His master's, climatology, at the University of Manitoba. He was hired as a lecturer at the University of Winnipeg in 1972 and completed his PhD, climatology, at Queen Mary College at the University of London, England. Tim spent the better part of his career trying to convince the world that anthropogenic global warming was a man-made hoax. He fought lawsuits, hackings, lies, and attacks, too numerous to mention. He wanted to thank all those from around the world that contributed to his legal defense fund. He was the most altruistic person we have ever known in our lifetime, a sense of humor unequaled, generous to a fault. Tim always said that his brain would never let him rest, like stopping the car but not being able to shut off the motor. Cremation was Tim's request. There will be no public celebrations, no charitable donations and or flowers, please. Have a glass of wine and celebrate his life with your loved ones. And then there's a address for people looking to get in touch uh, and communications to the family. So, as I say, I think my experience of Dr. Dr. Ball comports with that talked about in this obituary. Um, he was a generous man with a generous spirit, and I got to see that for myself. But, I think even within this obituary, there are... Some interesting clues to the types of, well, the incredible courage, tenacity, and persistence that defined Dr. Ball's career. Uh, that clue comes in the strange parentheses here. His master's climatology at the University of Manitoba, his Ph.D. climatology at Queen Mary College and the at the University of London, England. What what is that parentheses there for? What is what is being denoted by that? Well, as I am sure, some section of the population, when hearing about someone like Dr. Ball, who didn't believe in the anthropogenic global warming myth, hyped nonstop from every corridor of power in our world today, the first thing you do is go and check those debunking websites. Who is this Dr. Ball? He must be funded by big oil, I tell you. And those people would be vindicated in their beliefs by seeing a lot of the smears that were directed to Dr. Ball, certainly at the time when I first interviewed him back in 2007, a lot of people attacking his credentials, saying he isn't really a climatologist. He didn't even really study climatology. He has no uh, peer-reviewed journal, climatology journal studies that he's written. Uh, He's not even a climatologist of any sort. And it became a debate about his degree and what it signified in what he did. Uh, I believe the latest version of Wikipedia, the bastion of truth, truthiness, for what that's worth, uh, does indicate that although his master's and PhD were in the field of geography, he did specialize in climate, climate study, the study of historical climate, including past reconstruction of temperatures in Canada specifically. So, he has talked, he has, he has studied that, he has written about it, He it has been his life's work for many, many decades, long before global warming became the multi-trillion dollar industry slash religion that it has become. So, but again, the fact that even in his obituary, they have to note that he, he did study, he did talk about, he did have qualifications in climatology, before climatology was even a degree you could specifically specialize in, he was already thinking and researching about it. Um, Now, that was something that I, in fact, if you go and listen on on interview six to that very first, very, very, very early interview that I conducted with him, you will see that that was a point that I was at pains to bring up and to clarify for the audience, because this is something that... Certainly, at that time, if you talk to someone like Tim Ball, well, the first thing people are going to do is try to debunk him and look at his credentials and all of that, rather than, of course, listen to his actual arguments. What is he actually saying? No, of course, ad hominem is the order of the day. And sadly, that's just a taste. And I know I only have just one window into this story, but uh, I, I assume that this really does reflect Dr. Ball's experience, certainly for the last couple of decades, of having to put up with smears, hacks, attacks, lies like that and along those lines, when in fact the truth about the, as I say, multi-trillion dollar business-slash-religion of gl- man-made global warming, uh, the the actual story is complete, completely inverse to reality. And I had cause to reflect on that, again, quite early in my corporate report career, um, when in 2009, after having interviewed Dr. Ball on the phone a few times, I was taking a trip to Canada and I stopped off in Victoria so that I could interview Dr. Ball in person. Now, I had no idea what to expect from that encounter. I was expecting maybe we would meet up, go to some cafe or some space somewhere Record a, a short interview and nice to meet you. See you around. That was not what I got. I got Doctor Ball meeting me on foot for a little walking tour of Victoria, where he regaled me with stories about the city and various people and places and events that had happened in its history. Uh, and then he took me back to his home and invited me in. And his wife uh, got us settled settled in and comfortable. As then. Dr. Ball opened up, and we talked for hours, literally hours and hours, about the history and philosophy of science and and politics and all sorts of things. It was a fascinating conversation, and unfortunately, only a short bit of that was actually recorded on camera properly for the interviews. But I got to a sense of who Dr. Ball really was, which only confirmed what I had... Gathered in our talks up to that point, which was that this was a genuine person who genuinely had a passion for science and research and collecting information and synthesizing that and f- thinking about that on a on a meta level as well, the ph- philosophy of science and how do we approach this. He was a, a deep thinker on these issues, and then reading the. Types of attacks, smears, and slanders that would be written about him in the mainstream corporate controlled press certainly was an eye opening experience. This was something that I I talked about and gestured towards in a 2009 article that I wrote uh, in November of 2009, just as ClimateGate was breaking. And hopefully, you have seen my flashback that I posted up just a few days ago as I record this here in October of 2022. I recorded and released just a few days ago a flashback video um, where we flashback to ClimateGate, and Dr. Ball definitely had a lot to say about that. At that time, I wrote an article talking about how ClimateGate exposes the alarmist machine, which is the exact opposite of the way that it had been and continues to be portrayed to this day that there's this gigantic, well-funded oil industry-run denial machine that is paying people to lie about the climate science. Uh, when we all know that this this is a horrible pending threat that's being caused by man, blah blah blah. We know that story, but it was even more apparent in the wake of ClimateGate just how flipped on its head that picture really was. You have these scientists being exceptionally well-funded by public grants, uh, let alone all of the various corporate industries and others that are now 100% on board with them, openly so, the oil industry literally helping to sponsor and ramrod through the Paris Accords and other things. Why on earth would that be? Why did big oil conquer the world? One might wonder. And yes, I do have the answer for that question at bigcorporatereport.com slash big oil. But in this particular piece, I was writing about that inverted reality of what is portrayed in the mainstream. Oh, oh, anyone who doesn't believe in man-made global warming is a big oil industry shill who's being well-financed behind the scenes. Whereas these poor put-upon scientists, these climate scientists, activists, who are just trying to help humanity and out of the goodness of their heart and are, you know, scraping by with just a few dollars here and there. That is such a a lie. And I, I talk about that in very specific detail in this article. But at the end, I had time to reflect on my own personal experience meeting Dr. Ball in Victoria and how that changed my perception of this. So I wrote, as someone who spent his entire scientific career fighting the alarmists, first the ones who were whipping up hysteria over the coming ice age, and then the ones, sometimes the same ones, who were whipping up hysteria over global warming, Dr. Timball is no stranger to the denial machine smear. In fact, he was one of the scientists singled out in the CBC documentary on the denial machine. He doesn't tow the global warming line, therefore he must be funded by big oil it doesn't seem to bother the producers of the documentary that they offer not one shred of evidence for that assertion. The logic of the situation demands it, so it must be true. For someone who supposedly receives secret backdoor money from the Exxon bigwigs, Dr. Ball lives a remarkably low-key life. When I met him for an interview in Victoria earlier this year, he was neither lighting cigars with big oil-supplied $100 bills, nor driving a gas-guzzling SUV. Instead, he was on foot and he took me on a walking tour of the beautiful BC capital, regaling me with stories about the town's history and demonstrating a genuine enthusiasm for the local tradition and culture of his adopted hometown. We passed several hours talking about the history and philosophy of science, and what strikes one about him when engaged in such a conversation is that he has read, researched, and retained a voluminous amount of material, not just on the speciality of climatology, but of scientific history generally. It is no surprise then that his take on the Climate Gate scandal is one of the most thoughtful and damning yet. And then I have the uh, the video of the interview that I conducted with him just as soon as I heard about Climate Gate and started writing about it and th- talking about it. Of course I turned to Dr. Ball and I got his thoughts on it, which are contained in that video. The link to this particular article, of course, will be in the show notes in case you would like to read it and watch that video in its entirety. But let's turn to a little bit of that conversation that I did manage to record with Dr. Ball in his home. And as I say, we did talk for hours, and literally his wife had to come in and tell him to eat something at some point, because his blood sugar levels would be off if he didn't eat. And sometimes, she explained to me, sometimes he forgets he gets so caught up talking about this stuff. It certainly was the case there. But we did manage to record some interesting snippets, and some things that I think are quite illuminating in various ways, one of which uh, I hope you will be familiar with from my episode 282 on the IPCC Exposed, where we talked uh, at that time, well, he told me at that time, uh, not just about the fact that government-run and, and sponsored commissions can be cover-ups, but specifically how that can take place. Rather simply, actually, to simply control the ultimate outcome of an investigation is not that difficult. You just have to do a certain thing in order to set up the dominoes the right way. And he explained that process in uh, in part of the interview that I recorded with him that day, and which I'll share with you here.
2: My name is Dr. Timothy Ball and I have a PhD in climatology from the uh, Queenberry College at the University of London, England. My experience uh, of having chaired commissions of inquiry for government or being on, on commissions of inquiry with government is that commissions of inquiry with government are there are certain things that politicians love. Commissions of inquiry are one of them. Uh, deficits are another, because with a deficit, they can say, oh, sorry, we can't afford that, but then if they want to do something suddenly, magically, then of the money's there. Um, with a, if, if there's a problem or a conflict that develops, and it's causing a lot of difficulty for the politicians, they can say, oh, we will appoint a commission of inquiry, it'll be independent, And uh, that takes the heat off the issue. Oh, yeah, the government's reacting. They're finally appointed a commission of inquiry. And then if they don't, of course, they say, oh, you're afraid to put one on, you know, you're hiding something. So, okay, we appoint the commission of inquiry. Um, But then what people don't realize is they control the outcome of that commission of inquiry. Now, first of all, they've got the advantage now because if the media come and say, well, what's going on? can't talk about it. Commission of inquiry, wait till their report comes out. Well, that delays usually two, three, four years, by which time all the political heat's off. But more important is they control it by the terms of reference. And the example I like to use is the Warren Commission inquiry into Kennedy's assassination. And Judge Warren was asked about something after. He said, well, why didn't you look? Oh, it wasn't in my terms of reference. He'd been limited by those that wrote the terms of reference. And that was my experience. When one of the first cases I was asked to look at and the minister said, uh, I gave, I said, he said, would you look at this? And I said, sure. And then I get the terms of reference. I say, I can't work with that. I can't provide you with a proper answer, a complete answer, with those terms of reference. Of course then the minister says, Well sorry, that's what you gotta work with. And I say, Fine, then I'm not doing the job and I'll go to the media and say, you're trying to limit the investigation here. So I could one up him Uh, with that. And so when they set up the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, Morris Strong, who we we should talk a lot about, um, he wrote the terms of reference. And uh, the first term of reference was the definition of climate change. And he limited it deliberately to only human causes of climate change. And uh, of course, that effectively eliminated all the natural causes, natural variability, which is why you see them not looking at things like the sun, uh, and and a whole bunch of other other issues, and um, of course he then limited it even further in uh, another term of reference. That you he he set it up into three working groups. There was the technical group, working group one, which was wrote the science report. And that was 600 of the 2,500 people. The other 1,900 were in working groups two and three. Now they were inconsequential because they had to accept the findings of working group one, which were already limited by their terms of reference. So whatever their finding was, working groups two and three then said, okay, you telling us it's going to warm, we accept that as fact. We now look at the implications of that. And that's where you hear all these stories about, oh the, melt, the, the, oh, the ice is going to melt, the sea level is going to rain. So really, the majority of the report by 1900 scientists is accepting without question the finding of the first group. Now, Strong, it really restricted it even more because they then well, they, they came out and said, look, the, this report is not to be used for policy. But then they set up the summary for policymakers. The absolute contradiction of that. <clears throat> and the summary for policymakers is written by a, a, a completely separate group. And then they write it independent of the science report. They write science reports finished and set aside. The summary for policymakers is written and and given out to the media. So for example, the last report, uh, the uh, fourth assessment report, came out in 2007. The summary for policymakers was released in April. The science report wasn't released till November. But the rules, the terms of reference that Strong wrote said that the summary for policymakers goes back to the science report people and says, make sure your science report agrees with what we've put in the summary. So it's like an executive of a company writing the summary of a report and then telling the employees to find the facts to agree with the summary. it's the most unbelievable process you can imagine. So it's in those terms of reference through the IPCC that not only have you effectively eliminated most of the major causes of climate change, the natural variability. And of course, if you think about it, unless you know how much natural variability there is, how much natural climate change there is, and what are the fundamental causes of that, you can't possibly identify that fractional part that may be due to humans. But that's that's precisely what they're doing. And uh, so um, that's, that's uh, why... Uh, things appear so illogical, and why so much is left out of of the um, ipcc or Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reports, which have become the authority
0: dr. Timball doing what Dr. Timball did best, calmly, rationally, scientifically dissecting the untruths, exposing them for lies, and and stating what the truths are, and showing people how that is the case, you can tell that he worked as a uh, as an instructor and professor for decades, um, because he was good at meticulously exposing lies like that. And it's a sad truth that in the decade and a half almost since that time that video has been recorded, nothing has changed in the fundamentals of his observations there. But that just goes to speak to the if the 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 core truth that he was. laying out on the table there that, yes, an inquiry of commission can be very easily steered into a cover-up, and this is exactly how it's done, and he can lay it out with experience and with authority. Now, as I say, that conversation on that August day in Victoria where I recorded that clip uh, was a very wide-ranging and very interesting conversation, sadly only a couple of clips of which have survived over the years. But the other one, the other clip that uh, that I did take out of that conversation and that I posted to the website in September, of, I posted to YouTube back in September of 2009, was a little piece of our conversation where he was talking about an obscure little corner, corner of academia that at that time no one knew about, no one had heard about, called the Climatic Research Unit at the University of East Anglia, the CRU. And now, if that is ringing some bells for you, then congratulations, you've been paying attention, at the very least, to my recent flashback video on ClimateGate, because, yes, it was hacked emails from the CRU at the University of East Anglia, which was the center focus of the ClimateGate scandal and all of the incredible and shocking admissions of the way the sausage, the global warming sausage, was being made at that time in... Late November of 2009, when that story broke, suddenly everyone knew about the CRU and the University of East Anglia, but I'm, uh, I'm proud to say that that was one part of that conversation that I, I noted at the time, and I thought, this is a window into a bigger story, and I clipped it out, I put it up on my website, on the YouTube channel, in, in September of 2009. I don't remember what the original title was, but I remember in the wake of ClimateGate, I went back and retitled that video ClimateGate, the backstory, because this is this is all the pre, the pretext, the the preliminary um, and important bits of the puzzle to what became ClimateGate and that huge story which unfolded there in 2009, and which Dr. Ball helped me to analyze at that time. Well, he was helping me and others to understand the context for ClimateGate months before it actually happened. So. Let's take a gander at that video as well. Again, released September 2009. The International Panel on Climate Change, Environment Canada, National Geographic, and many other scientific bodies and publications assert that the average global temperature has risen by 0.6 degrees Celsius since the late 19th century. This assertion is based on a data set provided by the Climate Research Unit, headed by Phil Jones, a professor in the School of Environmental Sciences at the University of East Anglia. When asked by independent researcher Warwick Hughes for the raw data behind the dataset, Dr. Jones replied, We have 25 or so years invested in the work. Why should I make the data available to you when your aim is to try and find something wrong with it? Since then, Steve McIntyre also attempted to get the raw data from the UK Met Office. But his Freedom of Information request was denied, with the UK Met Office citing a secret non-disclosure agreement they had with Dr. Jones, the documentation for which they could no longer find. In Dangerous Deception, a recent article in the Canada Free Press, Dr. Tim Ball, a former climatology professor at the University of Winnipeg, explains why this lack of transparency is so worrying. Recently, the Corbett Report had a chance to talk to Dr. Tim Ball about transparency, intellectual honesty, and the climate change debate.
2: If you're working in a a lab or in a university and you're playing around with ideas and, and experiments and so on, there's always an academic or, or scientific responsibility, uh, that you, you have to be able to uh, show your work and explain your work and so on. Uh, and in many cases, that's not being fulfilled. I mean, the, the hockey stick, uh, where finally it was tested after how they'd done it was disclosed, saying, you know, we can't, this is wrong. Um, but when you go public and say, here's the results and this is the truth, then there's a social responsibility that kicks in. And unfortunately, and in some ways if the politician doesn't does it, that's fine because people, the credibility of politicians is so low, and and, and the public understand they're doing it for a political motive. But when you get a scientist going public with it for a political motive, bringing the credibility of science to it, but doing it for their own political agenda, then you have really crossed that line between the scientific responsibility and the social responsibility. And in fact, I'm writing an article right now about a scientist, one of his pieces of information was that the world's warm by one degree Fahrenheit or 0.6 degrees Celsius, in the last 130 years, well, he's refusing to disclose how he came up with that number. And I mean, I personally think that that's almost criminal. If you are, what what are you hiding? If it's just numbers, what what what's the problem? And he actually wrote an email to Warwick Hughes, the Australian researcher, said, "You know, how did you get this number?" And he said, "Why should I share that with you? It took 25 years of my work, and all you want to do is find fault with it." That's a scary comment coming from a scientist. He's still blocking it, by the way. He, he's using the UK Met Office to claim that there's confidentiality. Now, the public might say, well, um, how is this a big deal? I mean, surely there's the raw data, and then you come up, anybody can get the raw data and, and match his numbers. But What the public need to know is that there are uh, four major agencies producing global temperature on an annual basis. They come up with different numbers each year. And the number, I remember one year, it varied by 0.4 degrees Celsius. Well, if you're saying 0.6 in 100 years and and each year you're differing by 0.4, using the same data, well, the reason there's a difference is because you don't use the raw data. You adjust, you modify, read, manipulate the raw data, and of course, at what point are you doing it to get the result that you want? Well, if you're not willing to disclose how you came up with your number, the suspicion has to be you—you cooked the books, fella—and uh, and I think if if that number of .6, which is quoted everywhere, uh, National Geographic have it on the the. Um, NOAA, the American National Oceanographic, they on their website. Environment Canada used the number. And yet here, the guy that produced it is not willing to explain how he got it. We've got a serious problem on our hands. And, um, and of course, what's, what's interesting is nobody wants to come out and say, you cooked the books. But what other explanation can you come up with for not disclosing that information? I mean it, it how could it be possibly secret or confidential? The difficulty is and Tolstoy identified this a hundred years ago you know that if you've made a career out of selling an idea and to your friends and to your colleagues and to the world, and then you've got to be the one that comes out and says, Gee, you know what I told you completely wrong uh, that's tough, very tough and um but if if we're going to uh, if we're going to influence entire energy and economic programs for the world, because cap and trade, Kyoto, all of these things are based on these numbers, there is is a massive, massive social responsibility. and um, unfortunately, there have been enough of these people that have not been willing to accept that and have crossed the line. So it isn't just that the politicians have politicized science, it's those scientists that have politicized science that are the problem.
0: Now, once again, I'll just say for those who know about the ClimateGate story, who really was were following that story as it developed, again, it's quite remarkable that two months before all of that happened, I had that video posted up to my site with the entire backstory of what was what was going on and why it was important, um, and showing the documentable, again, even before it happened, the documentable ways that researchers and others were being shut down from seeing seeing behind the curtain, seeing how the sausage was getting made. You think something's up there? Yeah, I think there might be something up there. And absolutely, once the emails did come out in ClimateGate, and ClimateGate 2.0 and ClimateGate 3.0 for those who remember those incidents, but there in the original Climategate, it was quite obvious. Yeah, they they had definitely been fiddling and hiding the decline and other such things. And as I say, my archives, if you do, do go and research Climategate, you can see the rebuttals to the debunkings and other things that have come out over the years, of course. Um, there have been a lot of cover-ups that have taken place, probably a few of which functioned in the exact way that Tim Ball was pointing out the IPCC, for for example, functioned by uh, limiting the scope of um, the, the commissions themselves. But at any rate, there were a lot of cover-ups that came out later to cover up the truth of Climategate. But Dr. Ball was one of the ones who was there from the outset and throughout the entire development of that saga, who was explaining what was happening, its significance, situating it, its context, and talking about the the specifics of what was going on there. So, again, if you go through the Corbett Report archives, at the very least of Dr. Ball's work, you will definitely see a few um, contributions of his uh, to my work on ClimateGate, which uh, were invaluable. Now, having said that, it's tempting, it would be easy to say, okay, so Dr. Ball was just really, he was really switched on about climatology, and he understood that and he he understood that there was something going wrong with the global warming man- made global warming hypothesis, and there was some corrupt scientist or something right No, uh, his perception was keener than just the surface level hey, there's something wrong these These guys must must be incompetent, they must not want to admit their errors or something along those lines no, no, no he he understood I think the true scope of what's going on um, with this fundamental corruption of science and the incredibly dire nature of this absolute top-to-bottom corruption that was going on, Um, namely the ideological roots of this in the fundamentally anti-human Malthusian philosophy, which he did talk about, he did call out, he did talk about that agenda behind this, the depopulation agenda, and other such things. So he's on the record, I think, getting to the heart of what this is really about. And then also, looking at this moving forward, when this inevitably does come out, because it will. You cannot suppress these truths forever. You can hide them and cover them up and do things here and there, but they will come out. And he knew when these truths started to come out, it's the uncorking of the bottle. Suddenly, these scientists, really activists, working for a specific political-slash-economic-slash-anti-human ideology, in the name of science, we're going to tarnish the entire enterprise of science itself in the process. And that was something that he was concerned about. As I say, he talked about history of science. He talked about philosophy of science, but he didn't just talk about science. He talked about a wide range of things. And if you go through the Corporate Report archives, if you search Tim Ball in the search bar and start scrolling through, you'll see that towards our latter conversations, Uh, I think our last conversation was in 2015, but uh, towards our latter conversations, we were talking about all sorts of things, history, cognition, geopolitics. Uh, It's quite a range of subject matter. And as usual, he was very well read and uh, very versed in what he was talking about on all of these subjects. And in that context, let's just listen to a short clip from a Corbett Report radio episode that aired the better part of a decade ago at this point where we were talking specifically about something that I was I'm still talking about to this day you might remember just uh, a short while ago I had up a an article on droughts cloud seeding and the coming water wars in which the very keen and attentive people who uh, read through not only read through my articles, but actually study them and look at the links and what have you, will remember that I refer specifically to a conversation that I had with Dr. Tim Ball on Corbett Report Radio back in 2012 on peak water and Agenda 21. Now, as I say, that's almost like it's ripped from the headlines today because at that time, back in 2012, in the context of then Agenda 21, now it's Agenda 2030, But in the context of the Agenda 21 agenda and the United Nations push at that time, uh, Dr. Ball was warning that the the next iteration of this climate global warming hysteria was going to be the water hysteria. And there was going to be water shortages and peak water and water wars. And this was going to be an important part of geopolitics in the 21st century. And increasingly, it still has not played out to that point where we can all say, yes, that's exactly what it is, but it's heading there. And that's exactly what I'm talking about, for example, in my recent article on the coming water wars. um, That's what Dr. Ball was gesturing towards a decade ago. Let's just listen to a short clip from that conversation.
3: The idea of it is that um, we're running out of water and that um, water is fundamental to uh, life and, and to economies. And, by the way, if you if you think people get excited about oil and, and CO2 and these other things, water is a much, much more uh, volatile issue. And I, I can say that, having chaired public hearings on water issues, where people have literally threatened to shoot each other. And um, so w- wars over water... Um, many of them have been fought and of course the whole development of the u.s uh, west uh, is, is around that concept and um, but <clears throat> what we what we really need to get people to understand is, is that excuse me as I said there is no shortage of water and there are some relative, relatively cheap technologies for producing uh, water and uh, and of course um, we have done a, a reasonably good job on cleaning up uh, pollution of water, and um, because that, back in the, in the 70s, was um, another part of the argument was not only are we running out, but the potable water that we have, that is the drinkable water, is getting badly polluted, and there were stories back that time of. Places like the Cayuga River in, in, uh, in the Northeast U.S., which was officially declared a fire hazard by the local fire department because it was uh, constantly catching on fire, and so there were some serious pollution problems. But so many of those have been either shown to be not an issue or mitigated. Uh, one of them, of course, the the Great Lakes was a was a big issue, and um, that that is. Um, Pretty well resolved itself, and um, so it—it uh, it, really the idea about peak water is just simply to try and, and suggest: look, uh, we're we're at the top of the availability of water. From here on in, it's going to get into shorter and shorter supply, and um, and therefore we we need to have government come in and take control of it all. Uh, oh, that's surprise! The surprise!
0: That's going to be the uh, the uh, angle that they'll take. I, I could never have imagined it. I hope there's some big international <laughs> body like the UN that has something up their sleeves. And if, as you mentioned earlier, of course, we have the Rio Plus Twenty coming up very shortly. But yeah. unfortunately, we're also about to hit a break. Uh, so we'll take another few minutes off, and we will regroup and and come back f- uh, refreshed after this short break. And uh, will, of course, we'll continue talking to Dr. Timball. And we already have a caller on the line, so we'll come back with your calls right after this. Thank you for listening. This is Corbett Report Radio on Republic Broadcasting. Once again, that was Dr. Tim Ball on Corbett Report Radio 10 years ago talking about what is playing out in the news headlines seemingly today. So once again, I think this just gives you an overview, a taste of the range and scope of Dr. Ball's intellect, and his curiosity. It definitely spanned a large range of topics about which he was knowledgeable and well-versed, and I would not expect, if this is your first time ever hearing about Dr. Tim Ball, that you would necessarily understand that, um, but hopefully you're at least getting, getting a hint of that. And if you are interested, whether you're a longtime fan of Dr. Ball, or this is the first time you're ever hearing about him, or somewhere in between, uh, I would highly suggest that you do check out generalistjournal.com as the archive slash compendium of Dr. Ball's work, where not only can you read uh, various articles that he's written over the years, um, not only can you get links to his books, but also there's a a collection of videos um, featuring Dr. Ball, giving lectures, giving interviews, etc. So I think definitely, if you are interested, uh, I would... Suggest that you follow the link from generalistjournal.com. And note the title, Generalist Journal. This is not climate change specific, although that is something he obviously talked and wrote a lot about, but many other things besides history, geopolitics, and, and other topics. So, how do you possibly summarize a life like this? Well, I would not feel, obviously, able to do so, given my position as someone who knew Dr. Ball, but only tangentially, but who firsthand experienced his generosity and experienced his his intellect as I sat there um, at his feet, as it were, for hours listening to his stories and listening to him expound on the philosophy of science, etc. It is, it is, at any rate, it is good to know that people like Dr. Ball exist on this planet and do what they do in the face of incredible adversity. And that's why it's so particularly stinging that if you look up anything from mainstream Normyland on people like Tim Ball, you are going to find a lot of smears and a lot of untruths to try to murky murk up the water and to muddy up the water and to make people um, turn away from sources of information like this. So on that note, let's note an unfortunate part of this whole saga of the past, certainly the past decade of uh, dr ball's story and we'll get this from mark stein from SteinOnline.com, who knew dr ball personally they worked and talked together and lectured together on various occasions and he wrote this in memoriam of uh tim ball just uh, this past week he wrote balls bearing tim ball 1938 to 2022 i am in a cold rage which is never the best temper in which to write but over the weekend came the news from his wife, Marty, that Tim Ball had died. Tim was a Canadian scientist who dissented from the global warm-mongering that has deranged our politics and put out the lights at the Eiffel Tower and is on course this winter to, st- to freeze and starve Europe's elderly. In the course of his pushback against the madness, Tim reprised an ancient Pennsylvanian jest and applied it to the center of the famously dodgy global warming hockey stick, Michael E. Mann. Dr. Mann, he remarked, belongs not at Penn State, but in the state pen. Cute. But any joke about Mann is no laughing matter. So the warmatola determined to destroy a retired University of Winnipeg professor. Mann filed suit against Ball in British Columbia and then just sat it out, knowing that, to reprise my old line, the process is the punishment. Three years ago, Mann lost the case for failure to prosecute. As in his suit against me in the District of Columbia, the plaintiff had refused, for years, to do the elementary things necessary to settle a legal matter, such as providing evidence of damage. In the crap hole of American justice, at least as evidenced by my own experience, judges let him get away with that. But in Canada, the court wearied of the obvious delaying strategy and rule against the vengeful climate mullah. He lost. Ball one. That is a fact, even though man and his doting man boys continue to deny it. For anyone more sentient than the average man groupie, you can read the BC Supreme Court judgment for yourself. As is customary in civilized jurisdictions, i.e., not the American courts, the prevailing party's legal bills are paid by the loser, or as they say in Canada, costs follow the event. Roger McConchie, man's counsel, accepted his client's liability for Dr. Ball's expenses. See page six of Mr. Justice Giaski's ruling. Mr. McConchie, costs follow the event. I have no quarrel with that. By then, both Timball's retirement savings and his health had drained and depleted by a decade of man's frivolous, dilatory litigation. He was broke in both body and bank account. Had Mr. McConchie's client been an honorable man, I know, I know, we are dealing with unimaginable hypotheticals here, he would have paid Tim a seven-figure sum. Instead, Tim's family now requires a GoFundMe campaign to cover the cost of his modest burial. His friend Anthony Watts will be posting details of that later today. I had not thought it possible for me to loathe and despise Michael Mann any more than I did. He chose the jurisdiction in which he sued Tim Ball as he chose the jurisdiction in which he sued me, the District of Columbia, where justice goes to die, die. and when that jurisdiction found him liable, he simply rejected the plain meaning of the judge's decision and holed up beyond the court's reach. The contemptible man has had three years to remit what he owes, but he has not paid Dr. Ball a penny. And no doubt this evil man and those who abet his vile schemes are laughing at the penury unto death they forced on a brave man. Michael Mann filed a frivolous suit he had no intention of bringing to trial, but he succeeded in hounding Timball into the grave. Tim bore all this with great fortitude. The last time I saw him was at a denialist gala in Washington, where all the Commonwealth wallahs—UK, Canuck, Oz, Kiwi—had been seated together, presumably so the Yanks didn't have to risk being exposed to some unfortunate social faux pas like an accidental loyal toast. Despite being visibly ground down by man's frivolous litigation, Tim was on grand form that night, full of life and full of laughs. He had all the qualities of a true warrior—courage, integrity, indomitable resilience, and— in his quiet, dignified bearing, a rueful acceptance of the costs they impose. The ugly husk of a human being that is Michael Mann could destroy Tim's savings and his health, but he could not destroy Tim's spirit. There will be a reckoning for the slug man. In the meantime, you can gain a sense of Tim Ball and his enviable inner strength from this Heritage Foundation Awards Night not so long ago. There's a link to a presentation of a lifetime achievement in climate science uh, that, uh, uh, that Tim Ball received a few years ago. Um, so for those of you who don't know that a- aspect of the story, oh yes, there was a years-long litigation process, which actually resulted in Dr. Ball winning against, uh, Dr. Mann, although not according to Mann's groupies, as Stein calls them, um, but resulted in absolutely no recompense. There was no, there was no, although damages were awarded, they were never paid. And Dr. Ball has gone to his grave a poorer man because man punished him with the process. So as alluded to in uh, Mark Stein's article, uh, Anthony Watts at What's Up With That has posted not only the RIP Dr. Tim Ball climate realist um, with a brief message from the family, but also um, he writes, given that the exec, ex, execrable uh, Michael Mann never paid his court-ordered costs, the Ball family has authorized me to start a GoFundMe me on their behalf to cover cover funeral and other expenses. So, at the time that I am recording this podcast, that uh that fundraiser has not yet been posted. Um if it is posted in the meantime, I will put it on screen here. I will certainly put the link in the show notes at any rate it should be up very soon and when it is, if you have followed and benefited from Dr. Ball's insights over the years, I would hope that you would Uh, contribute some to the expenses uh, for his family during this very trying time for them. And on that note, I think the most appropriate way to end something like this is not on on a depressing note, but on a note of hope for the future that is represented in people like Dr. Ball, who will persevere through incredible adversity in order to bring the truth to the public. And that is uh, the spirit that I think we can all learn from and hope to emulate in our own lives going forward. But perhaps the most, of, um, the most effective and the most uh, impactful way to end um, a memorial like this would be to give Dr. Ball himself the last words. So that's exactly what I'll do. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Thank you for joining me for this edition of the Corbett Report podcast, and I'm looking forward to talking to you again in the near future.
3: I have a feeling that uh, you know, in your mind, you can see oh. where this all may be heading. Uh, yeah. What the cure might be. Uh, is there a, a tipping point? You know. Yeah. T- yeah, I, yeah.
2: I, I think the tipping
3: point was when Tipper left Al, but that's. <laughs>
2: Yeah, the question is, well the motive of course was implied in that comment by Maurice Strong, they want world, one world government, right? And, and they think that nationalism and individual nations simply have got to disappear. And that's why they wanted something that was global in its threat and argued that no, no one government could, could uh, manage it. They came very close in 2009, there was a conference held, was supposed to be held in Copenhagen. It was held, actually, in Copenhagen, at which they were going to finalize the uh, carbon tax for the world. That was going to fund all of this one world government. And the, it was going to be done through the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, which of course is another of these great, overarching, unaccountable bureaucracies. And um, these people really believed that, that that only they can run the world. That uh, it's gotta be one world government and that's the only way. Maurice Strong certainly believes that. Maurice Strong grew up in in southern Manitoba on the prairies in the dirty thirties. So he, you know, the hard times. You could see why um, he had a leaning towards socialism. Uh, His sister, by the way, has been a lifelong uh, Marxist and everybody's entitled to their political opinion, but she's much more extreme about it than he is. But, but that's the agenda. They want one world government. They want to get rid of national governments and individualism. But, of course, that's also going on within every country. It, it's the suppression of the individual to the greater good, and they'll use whatever vehicle that, that they claim you're threatening or will bring about the end of the world or the end of the nation at, uh, as a vehicle to control you. So that's really what's happening. So just leave me alone, eh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>